Welcome to The Play Readers, a podcast where we discuss uncommon or infrequently produced plays. I'm your co-host, Andrea. And I'm Nick. And we are The Play Readers. What is today's play, Nick? Today, I have chosen to talk about the play Dream Girl by Elmer Rice, first produced in 1945. Okay. This is a play that you read quite a while ago, and I haven't read it yet, but uh, you've been talking about it to me for quite some time. So what is it specifically about this play that has uh, really stuck with you? Why are you still talking about it? I would say that I first read this probably in 2013, maybe 2012. And it was part of an anthology of Elmer Rice plays. It's just called Three Plays by Elmer Rice. The anthology included Dream Girl along with his two most famous plays, which were The Adding Machine and Street Scene. And I wasn't real sure at the time exactly why it was included. I'm still not entirely sure why it was included in that particular anthology, but that's how I ended up reading it, is I I went to the library and I checked out that that anthology. And when I got to Dream Girl, because Street Scene and The Adding Machine are two very, very different plays, Dream Girl is more of a Broadway comedy. Okay. And when I read this play, it was surprising to me that it hasn't been produced more frequently. It shares a lot of characteristics in common with those classic bits of theater that community theaters all over the place, and sometimes other professionals in collegiate theaters do these as well, but plays like Arsenic and Old Lace or Harvey, or um, anything by Neil Simon or Ray Cooney. Mm-hmm. It has a lot of the same characteristics. Now, it's it's not a farce. It's more of a romantic comedy with some elements borrowed from musicals. So how is Dream Girl different from the other two plays that you mentioned, Street Scene and The Adding Machine? That right? is correct, yes. How is this one different? What What's going on with those two? Well, most of Elmer Rice's career as a playwright, and his career started in 1916, and his career spanned into the 1950s. Mm -hmm. Uh, He ended up passing away in 1967, I believe. His his first play was a huge success. It was called On Trial. He did a lot of courtroom dramas. Really? His initial background was in law school. Oh. So he was on his way to becoming a lawyer, decided he didn't want to do that, turned to playwriting. So he did a lot of courtroom dramas based on the all of two years he spent in law school. Write what you know, I guess. On Trial was successful, and it was enough to put him on the map as a playwright. But it wasn't until 1923 when The Adding Machine was released. It wasn't financially successful. It was more of a, a critical success and something that a lot of people talked about because it was a bit of expressionism, which was very popular in that day. Uh, he was a contemporary with Eugene O'Neill, And then his second big success was Street Scene. All right. And Street Scene was kind of on the other end of the spectrum. With It was a very naturalistic play. He wanted to show what life was really like, take a slice of life from the the New York slums. And he directed that one himself because the original director had no idea what to do with it. Really? And that was hugely popular. That was his Pulitzer Prize for Drama Award, 1929. Mm -hmm. Because most of the stuff he did was very successful. He was making a career as a writer and he needed to make money whereas the adding machine and street scene really weren't big financial successes for him at all it got him in the inner circle with the playwrights he was a very respected playwright by his peers in large part because of those plays they were more creative successes than financial successes very much so okay he went back to 
what made money, and he did write some other things throughout his career. Of note, he was a, uh, a contemporary of Dorothy Parker. Oh. And had an affair with her. Oh. Yeah. In the 30s, he also started the Playwrights Company, which he founded with uh, Maxwell Anderson, S.N. Berman, Sidney Howard, and Robert E. Sherwood. And then you have this long period of time through the 30s and the 40s where most of what Elmer Rice did was stuff that was going to be financially successful. He wrote some other stuff Mm -hmm. uh, regarding the theater and his own autobiography. Okay. And then you have Dream Girl, Mm -hmm. which came out in the 1940s. It was his last successful play in the sense that it ran for a year, most of a year, and then got revived a few years later. Sure. The first performance, the first run of the show was at the Coronet Theater in New York City. Mm -hmm. The play, Dream Girl, ended up running from December 14th, 1945 to December 14th, 1946. So exactly to the day. Wow. A year. Although I believe there was a hiatus in there where they didn't perform it at all for a period of time. Mm Mm-hmm. So reasonably successful. I mean, probably not to the to the point where a lot of his other stuff is remembered, but uh, a, a year on Broadway actually isn't too bad. Okay. And then uh, it was revived again at the City Center, and that was in 1951, and it ended up running from May 9th to May 20th. So a much less successful run the Very- second time through a very short run indeed mm-hmm. so now that we know some of the history of the show what does the cast look like the title character of this play is georgina allerton she is 22 years old she works at a bookshop that she runs with another woman the other characters include her parents mr and mrs allerton okay her sister miriam and then she's got i guess what you could say three love interests oh which would include her brother-in-law jim Miriam's husband? Miriam's husband. Oh. A uh, married man by the name of George Hand, who's been trying to get her to go out with him. Oh, okay. And then you've got, he doesn't start out as a love interest, but we've got Clark Redfield, who is a newspaper critic. Mm-hmm. And then in addition, there's Claire, her co-worker at the bookstore. We see her. So there's a, basically a core cast of eight different people. Some of those roles are a bit smaller than others. Probably the big one is going to be Georgina herself. Obviously. Georgina, Georgina is on stage for the entire play. It is entirely narrated from her perspective. So it's a huge role yeah. for a young woman. That would be a lot of work. And then I'm guessing some other incidental type characters coming in and off and that type of thing, or no? Well, the play has a number of settings. In many ways, I would say staging this is going to be a bit like staging a musical, except without music. It has more to do with the fact that it goes from location to location to location, and then it goes through these dream sequences. So you do have other characters besides that core eight that just come on, they play a role, and they go off. And in the original production, and I think in any really any other productions, what you would have is a number of actors who would play those other roles in addition to members of that core eight cast who also play other roles within. I mean, Georgina herself, for example, she just plays Georgina. Whoever's playing her is just one character. But the guy who plays her father, Mm -hmm. George Allerton, she's named after her father. There's a lot of Georges in this play. (laughs) There's three. There's three Georges if you include Georgina. Her father plays at least five or six different roles and it's it's specified in the stage directions really that the actor who plays these roles should be her father basically 
are they they daydream roles or they are yes okay most of the daydream most of the characters who she knows like her father her mother her sister clark redfield they sometimes play other characters in the in the story in her fantasies so it's like she's essentially casting these roles with people that she knows you know to to kind of play out this you know fantasy that she has right yep okay yeah it's it this whole thing is kind of like a fantasy because it just shifts from reality to her daydreams back and forth so you know based off of this constant shifting from reality to daydream from place to place sounds like there are going to be some pretty significant set requirements and maybe also some costume requirements too uh would you think say that's a fair assessment it depends on the theater i would see this as going a lot smoother if a theater has a reasonably good sized stage some backstage space and especially if it has a fly system because those are your components or those are your things that can basically move you from location to location and what you'd need i mean bare minimum what you would need are some set pieces right so the play starts out georgine is getting out of bed so there's one bed already that you need on stage mm-hmm. uh they go for there's like three different restaurants that they go to so you're going to have tables and chairs there's the bookstore so you're going to have a front counter at some point so the set requirements are, you know, maybe a backdrop. Mm-hmm. I mean, you might not even need to use a fly system if you're willing to paint a nice little backdrop, uh, you know, like a cityscape or something, and then just have furniture items that you bring in and, and roll off. Everything just needs to be able to move. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. Um, the costumes, I mean, it's a day in the life of. Mm-hmm. So if you're talking about the core eight characters... They're probably only going to need one costume apiece. Right. Because the plot literally takes place over a 24-hour period. So it would really just, you know, maybe do something quick and dirty for when they're playing some some other role in a, a daydream sequence, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Like, one of the first things that Georgina's father appears as is an obstetrician in this weird birth scene. <laughs> okay. And so you just, I don't know, you throw a white lab coat over him. And maybe one of those, like, headbands with the big shiny disc on the front. Yeah, or a, <laughs> or a face mask. I mean, just something to suggest that he's a doctor he's a doctor that's all you really need for sure and right. uh and you could probably even throw something like that over his normal clothes sure easy yeah. enough and i think that's the way it is with everything i think probably the strangest one is clark redfield appearing as a as a mariachi singer oh but i think a nice flashy jacket and a sombrero should get the desired effect yeah that sounds like it would do the trick so um you know we've we've talked about some of the requirements um for producing this show what actually happens what is the plot like you've mentioned that it's a romantic comedy it's a day in the life we shift from fantasy to reality back and forth constantly seems like a lot is really going on here so what actually happens the play begins with georgina allerton getting out of bed and she's she's kind of innocent but she's kind of peppy in that 1940s way she doesn't use a lot of thick vernacular like some of the other characters do and she's just getting up out of bed in the morning she's getting ready for her day taking a shower brushing her teeth and that sort of thing well her mother from off stage is, is shouting at her to get up and get moving and everything mm-hmm 
Uh, Georgina speaks with a lot of hyperbole. That is in part because she is 22 years old and still kind of trying to find her way in the world. And she's got this problem. And the problem is she is in love with her brother-in-law. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. And she, she, the first fantasy that we end up going through with this play is a radio show. Mr. Percival, and he's like this radio doctor call-in show, right? Uh-huh. She fantasizes calling in mm-hmm. and describing her problems to this doctor and saying, well, I'm in love with my brother-in-law. And there's a lot of comedy there because there are certain things you're not supposed to say on the air, and she keeps saying them. <laughs> um, she, but she's fantasizing about this. She's she's kind of like imagining... <laughs> Okay. And uh, so she ends up, after she's all ready and and she's given a lot of exposition, mm-hmm. and the exposition really is very charmingly delivered in this case. So we're not getting a lot of boring exposition. Anyway, the second thing we find out is that she lives with her parents. Her father's a trial attorney of some sort. Her mother is sick, and she sneezes throughout the entire this entire scene. Every time she appears, she's got to sneeze. And so we learn some more exposition there, and then they leave, and Miriam, her sister, comes in. And that's when we learn that Miriam is pregnant. And she seems pretty indifferent regarding her husband at this point in time. Really? Yeah. And it's an interesting because we're already starting to see some hints that there's something wrong with this marriage. So we're mm-hmm. already starting to see some hints that maybe Georgina might get what it is she wants after all. Because that wouldn't be an awkward Christmas at all. Yeah. Well, <laughs> she's 22. She's not thinking about that. She's she's right in recognizing that it's maybe not the healthiest of a ra- of arrangements. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> so, she finds out that Miriam is pregnant. It moves from there to her place of work, which is a bookstore. And she works in publishing and her brother-in-law also works in publishing and she's written a novel. Okay. So, we have a little bit of talk with Claire. Claire and Miriam in particular, are very 1940s vernacular. I mean, everything they say has this little bit of 1940s slang attached to it. Mm -hmm. And so that's one of the charms of this play, I think, is that 1940s vernacular. And Clark Redfield comes in. All right. Clark is a, a critic. What he does is he reads books and goes to theater and that sort of thing, and he, he criticizes them for a newspaper. Mm-hmm. He's very witty and clever. He's very take charge. Right. He's very blunt about his opinion. Mm-hmm. He's stopping by to drop off some books for the bookstore. Oh, how and nice of him. He, Georgina comes to find out that he was given her novel and he read it. Oh, sparks fly. He criticizes, he tears into it. Oh no. Just absolutely hates it. And Georgina <laughs> is incensed. So this is their meet cute. Yes. Okay. This is, this is, they meet each other and it's a lot of back and forth banter. And then he criticizes her novel and she loses it. <laughs> and he, she just tears into him. And then she goes off stage. This is one of the most fun fantasies in the entire play. Right. Where suddenly we've got Clark Redfield sitting at his writer's desk, and he's got this stuffed cat. And he says, it describes him twisting the cat's tail and this meow sound coming out of it. In the stage directions, it's like he's just twisting he's just like torturing this cat yeah i don't i I mean it could be like a taxidermy stuffed cat if you wanted or it could just be a plush garfield (laughs) 
yes, he's just introduced as this villain out of nowhere, and then Georgina shows up and she shoots him dead. <gasps> and this all happens very, very quickly. It's just this sudden scene, and then it's a quick transition into a courtroom. Okay. Where she's standing trial for murder. There's a bunch of characters there. There's the judge who is her dad again, mm-hmm. and there's a prosecuting attorney, and you could probably stage it so the jury is off you know, in the audience or something like that. Sure, sure. She's prepared to face the consequences, but then Jim, the brother-in-law that she's still madly in love with... Of course. ...shows up and speaks out on her behalf. (laughs) And the great thing about all of these dream sequences is because they are in the mind of Georgina Allerton, Mm -hmm. they're all very melodramatic, very over-the-top acting. Okay. Well, you know what? I'll just... I'll read one of these. Go for it. So this is this is the monologue that Jim, he rises to her defense. He is her white knight. Exactly. Okay. And so she, he rises up and he says, Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I speak to you not merely as counsel for Georgina Allerton, but as her brother. And by that, I do not refer to my accidental marital relationship to her sister, but to the deep spiritual, fraternal bond that has long existed between the defendant and myself. I can say, in all honesty, that no one understands her as I do. Oh! No other living being has plumbed so profoundly the depths of that tender, sensitive soul. And in the light of my knowledge and understanding, I say to you that when she struck down Clark Redfield, it was no act of murder, but a simple human gesture of (laughs) self-defense. Okay. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, self-defense. For what was this novel of hers that Clark Redfield sought to annihilate with his cruel strokes of sharp-edged tongue and stabbing wit? It was her baby, ladies and gentlemen, the child of her spirit, as real to her and dear to her as though it had been, indeed, the flesh-and-blood creation of her body. (laughs) For it was conceived in the beautiful ecstasy of spiritual passion, nurtured for long months in the dark, secret recesses of her soul, brought forth in an agony of travail. And as it lay nestling in her bosom, so to speak, (laughs) Clark Redfield struck at it with his lethal weapons. And with the noble, unerring instinct of outraged maternity, she struck back, struck back at the would-be assassin of her baby. Could any mother, could any woman do less? I leave the answer to you. Wow. But yes, that was that's the big climax of the, the courtroom fantasy. And it right. just kind of gives you an idea of how much hyperbole is within these lines, how much melodrama. I mean, you could go so over the top with that, and it would just be buck wild. Uh, I bet that would be a lot of fun to do, honestly. Yeah, there's a lot of that sort of thing in this play. That's, again, one of the reasons why I thought it it really fits the uh, the standard idea of what a community theater usually tries to do. Anyway, back to the plot. Right. She has just been crushed by Clark's uh, critique of her baby. She hates him. She's still stuck on her brother-in-law. What happens next? Where does she go from there? Later that day... She ends up meeting with Jim, Mm -hmm. and it turns out that he's going to Reno, Oh, which means he's divorcing Miriam. Yeah. 
And this is the 1940s, so this is a big deal. Yeah. Right. They're going to they're going to go to Reno. They're going to get their divorce. And this is the first point where we're starting to get the hint that maybe Georgina's fantasy is true. Right. And Jim actually does have feelings for her. Okay. So her fantasy is starting to look like maybe it may come to life. Is she excited about that or? Well, she's starting to have some apprehension. Right. Because the real fact is that, you know, this guy that she's had a crush on is about to divorce his pregnant wife. That's not super cool. Who was also her sister. Yeah. Like I said, like awkward Christmas. Mm hmm. Anyway, uh, following this encounter, Georgina, they've, they've been talking about it for a while, but she's got a date, a lunch date, with a, an older gentleman by the name of George Hand. The third George. The other George. And George Hand is the second suitor I mentioned before. Right. There's some indication that he's been interested in her for a while. Mm-hmm. I think it's an important plot point to point out that Georgina has never been with a man mm-hmm. at this point in time. And George is married he pretty much flat out tells her that she's that he is married and that his wife evidently doesn't care what it is he does according to him according to him yeah his wife doesn't care and so george invites georgina to stay with him at a resort in mexico which which, is probably where the mariachi clark comes in i'm guessing it yes When she fantasizes about actually doing it, that's where the the mariachi version of Clark comes in. And the implication here, of course, is that George is looking to get a little... He wants a smash. George wants... To get it on. To get it on with Georgina. All right. And so she kind of considers it for a while. And so there's a scene after that where she's talking with her coworker, Claire, about it. And this is about where the act break is. Okay. Between this this uh, lunch date with George Hand and her her meet with Claire, where she's kind of talking about, mm-hmm. eh, maybe I will go out with George Hand. Mm-hmm. About this time, Clark calls her. The phone rings. The phone rings. It's Clark on the other end, mm-hmm. and Clark wants to go out on a date with her. Okay, because, like, he just criticized her book terribly, but, you know, hey, no big deal, right? As far as he's concerned, it's nothing personal. He's a professional critic. He's just doing his job. He's probably done her a favor, right? As far as he's concerned, right. sure. Okay. From from her perspective, of course, she's very wounded. And so he's got this extra ticket to a production of The Merchant of Venice, which he is supposed to go and criticize. Okay. And he figures that since they will want to eat ahead of time, they might as well eat together. So he's asking her out. And he's pretty direct about it. Mm -hmm. He doesn't flat out say, I am interested in you. But he is still pretty direct. Let's go out and eat. Let's go out and have a good time and watch the theater. It's a production of The Merchant of Venice. Uh She says, oh, I played Portia at one point in time. And I think a friend of mine from school is in that production. We never actually do meet the friend. He's just all, you know, hey, I just met you and this is crazy, but your book is terrible. But go out with me, maybe? Yeah. (laughs) And, uh, And And she does. And she does end up going out with him. He bas- she basically turns down George Hand because w- he wants to get together again. Right. 
that evening to further discuss their plans. So she ditches George to go out with Clark. Okay. The next thing that happens is Jim calls Georgina, and Jim wants to meet her before he flies off to Reno for that divorce. Oh, my gosh. So now she's kind of juggling these three different guys. She's just got a busy evening going on. Yes. Sounds like. She goes with Clark, Mm -hmm. and they go to this Italian place and order a whole bunch of food. Right. Clark is very direct and very take charge, and he's very much the type of character that the audiences of the 1940s would think of as an ideal husband. I mean, he's at least a better catch than these other two dudes that she's been, you know, all hung up on, you know, because, I mean, first things off, they're both married for Pete's sake. So I'm like, hey, single guy, sure, let's consider him. Why not? And of course, by this point in time, the audience is watching they know that she's going to end up with Clark. From there, they go to the play where they run across George Hand once again, and he's there with his own date. Oh. So evidently someone who doesn't have the ethical back. I mean, at this point in time, Georgina is going through a bit of a crisis of conscience anyway. Mm -hmm. She doesn't feel right about going out with a married guy. Yeah. And I think that this scene, him George showing up with this other woman is kind of the last nail in the coffin as far as that decision goes. I mean, he's clearly moved on, so why shouldn't she? Exactly. Okay. And they they don't actually watch The Merchant of Venice because she goes off in this one of these flights of fantasy. Mm-hmm. And she dreams that the manager comes in and says that the the lead actress who is playing Portia isn't able to do it. And they found out that Georgina played Portia at one point in time and still has the whole thing memorized. Oh. So they try to talk her into going up. And of course, she res- she refuses at first, but then she gets talked into it. No, I couldn't possibly. No, no, no. Okay, you got me. And so there's a little bit of Shakespeare here because the the actress playing Georgina will have to do the Quality of Mercy monologue from okay. The Merchant of Venice that one of Portia's famous monologues is, is right here in the script. Mm-hmm. At this point in time, Clark starts criticizing her flights of fancy. You know, maybe you should stay in the real world. world. Mm-hmm. They treat it kind of like she's doing this deliberately or because she likes to do it. Right. There's sort of an arc with Georgina where she learns to be less dreamy. Mm-hmm. Anyway, from there, Clark talks her into going out and having some after-play drinks. Okay. And they end up eating again, too. So there's like three different restaurant scenes, four if you include a fantasy. Uh-huh. It's at this point in time that she calls Jim because Jim wants to, to talk with her before he goes to Reno. Right. And she ends up turning him down. She ends up ditching Jim, decides that that's not the direction she wants to go because there's clearly this romance. And now she knows it. Right, okay. With Clark. And so the scene sort of ends with them dancing, and it's becoming very clear that they have developed feelings for each other. Mm-hmm. And then it cuts to a judge's house where they've decided to go and get married. <laughs> He's just like, I know a guy. Bang, 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 bang. Well, it's the 1940s, so they can't have sex until they get married. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Not if you want the audience to sympathize or or be okay with Georgina. Of course. Do what you gotta. Sure. Mm. So the final scene is Georgina calling her parents who are in Mm -hmm. bed, Mm because by this point in time, it's like five or six in the morning, right? and telling them that she just got married to this newspaper critic, the guy that she had been complaining about earlier that day. Mm -hmm. 
it's a it's a nice little 1940s whirlwind romance that will make everybody happy at the very end. So she basically ends up marrying this dude that she literally fantasized about murdering like 12 hours before. That is exactly what happens. Outstanding. Okay, so um you know, say that I am a uh, I'm, you know, looking at shows for my season. I've, I've got a community theater. Um, is there anything that we have not mentioned that I should know about if I'm looking to produce this play, if I'm going to consider this for my season? Well, besides the fact that you would have probably, it's a various size cast. It depends on how you want to double people up. The original sure. Broadway production had 17 actors. Wow. That's, that's I, a bit. I think you could reduce it a lot more because you've only got the eight core members, so you might be able to reduce it down to, I don't know, maybe 12, mm -hmm. uh, depending on actors willing to play multiple roles and how well you do that because there's not a lot of actors. There's not 17 actors on the stage at the same time. That's helpful. Yeah. You would want probably a larger stage. You could do it without a fly system, but it would be awfully hard to do if it was a small stage, you had no backstage space, and you had no fly system. Yeah. So little tiny community theaters, little tiny operations, this would be an especially challenging play to put on just because of the basic set and cast requirements. Because, I mean, like there's a, a small theater where we are, and I think the biggest cast they ever put on stage was like 14 actors, mm -hmm. just because it's so many people in this tiny, tiny space. Right. So that would be something to consider. But if you have a large enough stage and you have access to the actors, uh, I think just about any community theater could do this. I could see this being done professionally. Mm -hmm. I could see this being done by any collegiate theaters out there, especially the number of younger roles that there are that there are in this play. Oh, yeah. You would want, for sure, lighting cues to distinguish between fantasy and reality. Mm -hmm. And there are some sound cues that are noted in the script, like the aforementioned cat meowing. Right. For instance. And there are some sounds that blend from, from fantasy into reality and try to... They really help segue from one thing to the other. Mm -hmm. uh, that along with the acting. So who is it that owns the rights to Dream Girl? The rights are owned by the Dramatist Play Service. Mm -hmm. They also, of course, they do a an acting edition, which you should be able to access. If you don't want to buy it, interlibrary loans are a great way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's also, if you just want to read it, there's the anthology of Elmer Rice's, which would just be three plays by Elmer Rice, and it includes the adding machine and street scene. There's also another anthology that's seven plays by Elmer Rice, which includes some other stuff, including On Trial. Oh, all right. So there is an availability out there. I don't know how easy it would be to buy some of those anthologies. You might want to just check out interlibrary loans or your local library. Mm -hmm. uh, otherwise, if you're accustomed to ordering scripts through the Dramatist Play Service, that would be a way to just get the acting edition of this play. That's going to do it for Dream Girl. The next play we'll be discussing is Lifetimes 3 by Yasmina Reza. So look for that next month. Until then, you can find us on Twitter at The Play Readers. Our intro and outro music is Delightful D by Kevin McLeod. We've got more info and a link to his website in our show notes if you want to check that out. And, as always, don't forget to read the stage directions. Mm -hmm.